Father God, oh Lord, how humbling it is to be reminded of the fact that we can have access to you because of the fact that you have sent your son Jesus into the world to die for our sins, that by believing in him we have eternal life, we're reconciled to you. Thank you for the great reminder of that through just partaking of your supper. And Lord, we pray that even now that our um, desire would be to learn from you and your word, even a special topic that, Lord, is very important for us as a church, not only as individuals, but corporately. I pray that we might be attentive listeners to your holy scriptures, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to John 17, just by way of introduction. John 17, we are going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in a few minutes, but I want to open us, open our time in John 17. You know the uh, context in John 17, it's the upper room. Jesus is with his disciples, it's the night of his betrayal, and he is going to uh, go to the cross now. He's been preparing his disciples for this time. It's a an emotion-packed moment with his disciples. And Jesus, in John 17, begins to direct a prayer to the Father on behalf of his disciples who are there with him and future followers of Christ. He begins to pray to his heavenly Father. He prays that God would now glorify himself and glorify his son as Jesus goes to the cross. And you can imagine what it must have been like to be there with Jesus as the disciples. They've been with him. They are, this is going to be a very hard time and moment for them. They are human, just as we are, frail and beset with their own weaknesses. And Jesus is telling them that he's going to the cross now. And so there are all kinds of, of emotions going through the minds of the disciples. And so Jesus prays for them, and he prays for a number of things. But um, some of these things, some of the things that stand out, the petitions that stand out are just, he prays for their preservation. And he prays that they would be kept by the power of the Father, so that none of them are lost. And one of the other things that we can't miss when we read John 17 is what he says in verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. He's speaking of the fact that he's going to depart to the Father. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, or as even as we are. So he prays for his present disciples, that they would be protected by God. But he also prays that these disciples would be one as he is one with his father. Verses 13 through 19, he continues to pray for them, praying for their protection, praying that in the midst of opposition, they may stand firm. But notice verse 20 says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning his disciples who are there with him, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The gospel is going to go forth. The name of Christ is going to be preached to others. And there are going to be other disciples who are going to follow Jesus, and he wants to pray for them as well, for future disciples and followers, that they may be one as well. This would include us, beloved. 
Look at verse 21, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice a couple of things about verse 21 is that their unity will reflect the unity of the Godhead. Father, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and that they also may be in us, he says. And the other thing that stands out about verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there's this evangelistic witness as we function in oneness with one another. For those of us who are in Christ, we send a message to the watching world concerning the credibility of the gospel. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And here's another purpose clause right here. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. But think about this. In the upper room. Jesus prayed to the Father that his disciples there, present with him, and future disciples, many of whom are sitting in here this morning, if you believed in Jesus Christ and you are a follower of Jesus, that we would be one, that we would be unified, beloved. Just as he and the Father are one. I find it so interesting that in this, in that truth-saturated, emotion-packed uh, prayer, Jesus prays for unity. And the nature of that unity is very important. He prays not just that, that there would be the superficial peace between them. Just uh, He's praying to the Father, Oh, Father, just help them to get along. Help them not fight like kids. He certainly prays for the presence of peace between them, the absence of conflict, if you will. But he also is praying for a, a unity that fleshes itself out and they're, they're working together with a sense of common purpose. A common pursuit in advancing his cause on earth. Jesus had come to fulfill the Father's will. And now he was ascending to the Father. And he's praying that his disciples also would be fulfilling the Father's will on earth. As he did it. And be moving cohesively in one direction. In common purpose. So the nature of the unity that Jesus prays for is also very important. He's praying for a functional unity. A visible unity. That expresses itself in our relationships with one another. And it's twofold. One, yes, that there would be peace with one another. But also that there would be a functional purpose. Cohesiveness. Moving in one direction together. In our mission to fulfill the call to make disciples. That's what Jesus is calling for, beloved. Jesus' desire was for unity then. And Jesus' desire is for unity now. Not just the presence of peace, but the pursuit of a common purpose as a church for us as well, as a local church. Now, whenever we talk about unity, especially that last aspect of pursuing common purpose together, that's kind of a, of a hard thing for some people to identify with in the church. Because we're living in an age right now, frankly, where in our culture and in our society, there's such a, a, a spirit of non-committal. People don't want to commit to anything. And that has influenced and infiltrated the church as well. There are people in churches who don't want to commit to anything because that would require self-sacrifice on their part or service on their part. Now listen, as a pastor, I'm not so concerned about non-believers. 
We can't call non-believers to commit any more to the church because they're not part of the church in a spiritual sense. Their first, uh, com- first commitment that they need to make is they need to turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They need to be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus alone so that they might be, spiritually speaking, um, experience the new birth and be put into the body of Christ. Membership, you understand, the membership class that we even offer today is only externally affirming that which has already happened in your life, that you are a believer, part of the body of Christ. Now you, membership, want to identify yourself for shepherding care and accountability with this body of believers. It's only confirming and affirming that which has already taken place on the inside, that you are born again. So with the non-believer, it doesn't really make any sense to call them the more commitment because they're not going to understand this very much. First thing that we call a non-believer to is to turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. My concern is more for Christians, professing believers who aren't committed to the local church, either on the one hand because of ignorance, maybe they're ignorant of the vital importance of the church to their lives and their spiritual vitality, or on the other hand, they're just plain disobedient to the Word of God. Plain disobedience. And rebellion against what God says concerning plugging into the local body and serving in the local body and being served by others in the local body. That's my concern. In either case, this lack of commitment flows, beloved, as we've been talking about, from a low view of the church. A low view of the church, which ultimately flows from a low view of Christ. And so when we talk about Jesus' desire for unity, it's somewhat a foreign thought to certain people. And why would, why would um, everybody understand this when maybe their attitude is, hey, um, it's kind of hard to think about this unity thing when I hardly ever spend time with any of these people. I'm very unfamiliar with them. It doesn't seem as if we share anything in common. That is more indicative of where you're at spiritually, my friend, than anything else. As we look at Ephesians chapter 4, if you're there already, Paul, is, Paul speaks here of a unity that is possible only when you and I are committed to Christ and to his people. Only when you and I understand the, the importance of the church in your life and your, 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 the importance of you being plugged into the life of the body. Again, it's a unity that he speaks of here, not just in terms of the presence of peace and harmony, but also the presence of common purpose. And that common purpose is the progress of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians, the, the letter as a whole, Paul has spent the first three chapters reminding them of God's amazing grace in Christ Jesus for them individually and then their calling as a church, as a people called out of sin, slavery to sin, to being one community, one living organism. That is moving in one direction together. And he says in chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, in light of your great calling as the church, walk this way. Conduct yourselves in this particular manner. He uses that metaphor, if you notice, in Ephesians, walk, which has to do with our conduct or our lifestyle. He uses it multiple times in Ephesians 4 through 6, chapters 4 through 6. Notice chapter 4, verse 17. He says, he says, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In other words, don't live in worldliness. Walk not like the world. Chapter 5 and verse 2, walk in love. 
In other words, conduct yourselves in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Chapter 5, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, walk in holiness. Chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. In other words, walk in wisdom. And that wisdom fleshes itself out, verse 16, in making the most of your time because the days are evil. So there's a conduct that is in conformity to the, to the great call of God upon your life as a Christian. And back in chapter 4, verse 1, this overarching call, exhortation, is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's the overarching exhortation in chapters 4 through 6. And what we find out very quickly is that verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4 is, is a call to walk in unity. That's what walking worthy of God's calling, first and foremost, looks like, walking in unity. We know that from because of multiple verses. Look at verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. He says that the equipping of the saints is to continue for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he alludes to this unity in verse 16. He says, From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body, singular, for the building up of itself in love. So verses 1 through 16, beloved, is all about unity. Walking worthy of the gospel by walking in unity. That's the emphasis. And what I want us to do these next couple of Sundays is look at these verses, verses 1 through 16, under this title of what Jesus wants for his church. What Jesus wants for his church. It's really, it really is a study on ecclesiology, if you will, the doctrine of the church and the need to be committed to the local church. But as we look at these verses, in verses 1 through 6, I want us to see that Christ desires unity for his church. And in verses 7 through 16, next Sunday, we're going to see that Christ provides for this unity in his church. All right, so let's look at verses 1 through 6. Christ desires unity in his church. And there are three aspects of this unity that I want us to consider together in verses 1 through 6, okay? First of all, notice the mandate of unity. The mandate of unity. What is to be one of the highest priorities of the church of Jesus Christ? He tells us here in these opening verses, he says in verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, and here's the urge, the, the, um, the important, crucial exhortation, implore you or beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And look, notice verse 3. That worthy walk then is a walk in which we are diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are called to walk in unity. And I want you to notice a few things about this unity. First of all, notice in verse 3 that living in unity won't be easy. It's not. He says, be diligent. Present tense, participle there. Being diligent, that means, it means to give maximum effort continually, if you will. It's calling for, uh, for Christians to be devoted as a church to unity. Why, beloved? Just look around and think about your own life. We are all sinners saved by grace. We sin against each other every single day. You put a bunch of redeemed sinners into a body and sparks are going to fly, right? Sparks are going to fly. We're redeemed in Christ, yes, 
but we are not perfected, so sin is going to take place and conflict is going to happen. And so it takes maximum effort on our part in work to not just sweep problems under the rug or sweep sin under the rug, but to engage it in grace and in love and confront it so that we preserve a, a profound, deep unity with one another in the truth and in love. So we are to give maximum effort to walk in peace with one another and in reconciliation with one another. Notice also that we're not called, according to verse 3, to create unity. He says, being diligent to what? To preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are not the ones who created this unity that exists. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, it was accomplished by the great peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death and resurrection. He was the one that established peace. He was the one that established this unity. We don't. In fact, he calls it in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is not created by any human individual. It is not a superficial unity. It is a spirit-wrought unity, if you will, a spirit-created unity. So that as you look around in this auditorium right now, you're, you, you're looking around and see different individuals. And if you trusted in Jesus Christ, even though we are all individuals, we are one in Christ. One body, one church. There is a spiritual union that we share in, by faith in Jesus that transcends the earthly, the temporal, the natural, or any differences that we may have with one another. Because of the fact that we're in Christ because of this beautiful spiritual unity established by Christ, Scripture, beloved, places a high premium on our need to live in functional unity with one another, in our experience, in our relationships. That's what Jesus was also praying for. Not a theoretical unity, but something that was functional because of their unity with Him and thus with one another. Paul prays for this unity for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. He says this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. It says with one mind, literally one soul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There were a couple of ladies in the church at Philippi who were duking it out. Euodia and Syntyche, chapter 4, look it up. And Paul calls them to, to look to somebody greater, to, to Jesus Christ, who had established peace between them. Help these women get along, he says in Philippians. Because of the unity that's been established by Jesus Christ, preserve that unity and strive together for the faith of the gospel, he says. My brother Tim Carnes alluded to uh, 1 Corinthians earlier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says this to the Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, schisms, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know what the problem in Corinth was, amongst many other problems, is that they were latching on to particular leaders in that church. I am a Paul, I am of Apollos, I am a Cephas. Even Jesus was one of the options. And Paul says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for, for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh-uh. Jesus is everything. Stop latching on to those other leaders. It's all about exalting Christ and the cross of Christ. He says there should be no divisions existing among you. You are one in Jesus Christ. And the only person that matters in the church ultimately is Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
It says, you are called to be unified. So scripture, beloved, has a high, places a high premium on preserving the unity that Christ has established. And so we see this urgent mandate here in chapter 4. And it's not going to be easy. As I mentioned, is because we are sinners. In fact, it's virtually impossible to preserve this unity and to follow that exhortation unless we are, being, we are functioning in a Christ-like manner. And that's my second point. The manner of unity. The manner of unity. How are we able to preserve unity? How are we going to cultivate a functional unity in our relationships, beloved? And the answer is this. We need to live out certain Christ-like attitudes. Certain Christ-like attitudes must, must characterize our relationship. Otherwise, unity won't be preserved. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See? Those things are necessary in verse 2 for verse 3 to happen. We must be Christ-like. And as we look at these virtues, I want you to personalize this. I want you to personalize these virtues and don't be thinking about somebody else who needs to hear these things. Think about yourself. Are these virtues a part of my life? Are these virtues things that I'm actively pursuing so that my, in my relationships I'm walking in greater oneness with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm walking with greater oneness with my spouse in my home. Ask yourself that. The first two virtues, humility and gentleness, are related. The first one, humility, is really the internal one. And the other, gentleness or meekness, is the, the external expression, if you will, of an internal humility. That, that virtue, humility, is made up of two words. That means lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. It has to do with the way that you think about yourself. It is not... Um, Having a false sense of humility, oftentimes we, we define um, the attitude that says, I'm not worthy, who am I in comparison to anybody else? As, oh, you're such a humble guy. You're such a humble lady. That's not humility, that's false humility. And ultimately that's, that's being self-focused because it's not about you, right? It's not about you, it's about what God can do in and through you. That's not what this is talking about here. It's talking about a right assessment, a humble lowliness of mind, if you will, is cultivated in our lives, not when we compare ourselves to other people around us, other sinners such as ourselves, but when we, as we look at God manifested in His majesty in and through His Word, we now are brought low because of the holiness of God and the majesty of God. John Calvin speaks about this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Speaks about the importance of the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And he talks in there about the fact that man is not brought down low to think to, to, uh, to humility and meekness unless he beholds the majesty of God. Because we can always find another polluted sinner such as ourselves that we are better than. So we must look at the majesty of God, such as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, that when he saw the glory of God, what was his response? He said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Why could he have that response? Not because he was looking at his fellow Israelites. He was looking, he was looking at, the, at the glorious God ever before him. And so he was brought low, wasn't he? 
Humility, beloved, is not cultivated in our lives by comparing ourselves to others, how we measure or stack up to other believers, but in comparison to the light of the holiness and the majesty of God. And then you have gentleness, which is the the outward expression of that internal humility, that, that when we cultivate a right assessment of ourselves in the light of God's holiness and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, that then leads to a gentle, meek approach to other people. We're not lording it over people. We're not speaking to people in a condescending way. There's this gentle spirit about us, a mildness toward others. Somebody has defined gentleness or meekness in this way. It is a conscious exercise of self-control in one's relationships. It is power under control. It has nothing to do with being weak. It has everything to do with you making a willing choice to defer to other people, to put others before yourself. Maybe you're capable, more capable than somebody else, but you choose to defer to that other person. Our Lord was the greatest example of this, wasn't he? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? And Peter chops off the ear of one of the guys there? What does Jesus say? Peter, put that away. And he heals the guy's ear. He says, essentially, I I could call upon legions of angels here if I really wanted to. But that wasn't what the Lord was going to do because he had resolutely set his face to go to the cross, right? That right there is a perfect example of power under control. He had legions of angels at his disposal, and he did not utilize them. He was singular in his mission and his focus. He was humble and meek, our Savior. In coming to earth, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, in coming to earth and clothing himself in humanity, adding humanity to his deity, Jesus, being God, humbled himself by clothing himself in humanity and dying on the cross for our sins, even death on the cross. That was the ultimate example of humility right there. Power under control. Why? Because he loved sinners. And this is the same attitude, beloved, that if we're going to preserve unity in his church, we who are his followers need to flesh out in our relationships with one another and as a church. Jesus spoke about those who are kingdom citizens, who desire to be kingdom citizens in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. And he said this, he said, blessed or happy are the gentle, meaning the humble or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think he's speaking of his millennial kingdom there. Those who want to be kingdom citizens are those who are going to be humble or meek. They shall inherit the earth. We don't think of Rulers of the earth as gentle or humble. And yet Jesus says there on the Sermon on the Mount that it is those who are humble and gentle who will be with him, right? Who cultivate that kind of of virtue in their own lives. Why are humility and gentleness so important, beloved? Because the opposite, pride, is the source of all disruption and disunity. Isn't it? Pride is an internal sin that hides in the bottom of the ocean of our own hearts and eventually rears its ugly head, right? And fleshes itself out. Pride is blinding. Pride is deceptive. Pride is subtle. The first guy that ever discipled me told me this, Kempis, always remain teachable. Even when you walk with the Lord for many years, Lord willing, you need to always remain teachable and be humble. He said, Be careful with pride. 
He said, pride is so subtle. He says, pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except you. It's true, isn't it? So subtle, so creeps in that we don't even notice it. It manifests itself in subtle ways. Listen, the proud individual won't utilize his gifts or resources for the unity of the church, but for his or her selfish agenda. We're going to see that in verses 7 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. The proud individual, beloved, is so self-focused and so introverted that the needs of others, they're, they're oblivious to the needs of other people. They're self-oriented. What about in relationships, be they in our marriages or with our kids or in the church? Listen, the proud individual doesn't strive to preserve peace, but to get his or her own way. They wouldn't be caught dead referring to anyone else, uh, deferring to somebody else. Always taking things personally. The proud person doesn't overlook a transgression, but makes mountains out of molehills. The proud person doesn't ask for forgiveness, doesn't grant forgiveness, because that person has not been humbled by God's grace and forgiveness in their own life. Thus, they're not motivated to forgive other people. That reveals pride. Listen, proud people exist in continual conflict with other people, unresolved conflict, and they're perfectly content, and they actually think that God hears their prayers. You know what else about proud people? How you can detect them? They're grumblers and complainers. Constantly grumbling, constantly negative. Constantly complaining and grumbling about what they don't get from others, even respect. Proud people, beloved, listen, proud people can find the manure pile in every beautiful green meadow. They'll find it for you. Miles and miles of green meadow, but they'll find that little manure pile and be negative about it. They're so self-focused. Not seeing the grace of God in their own lives. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? Proud people, ultimately, all of these things reveal a deeper spiritual problem. They don't see the grace of God in their own lives. Proud people, beloved, don't see how God has forgiven them. They haven't tasted of that forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. But the humble Christian seeks to live in a state of joy and gratitude. Why? Because they realize that God has been good to them. They deserved hell, and God has given them by faith in Christ heaven and has given them promises and hope and joy and peace and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ so that if things are not the way that they should be here on this earth, they are content in Jesus Christ, and they want to cultivate that kind of a mentality. Proud people don't boast in Jesus Christ. They boast in themselves, beloved. Humble people boast in, in Jesus Christ. Like Paul in Galatians 6.14, he said, May it never be, he says, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Humble people don't boast in themselves. Humble people want to make much of Jesus Christ and elevate Christ. And that goes for you who think that maybe you're humble because, hey, I'm not worthy. Who am I in comparison to other people? That's pride too because ultimately you're exalting yourself and your inadequacies instead of exalting Christ and his sufficiency in your life. 
That's pride too. Be careful with subtle ways that our pride takes the best of us. Notice verse 2. He expands and he says, With patience showing tolerance for one another in love. Patience long-suffering. The ability to endure painful treatment at the hands of another without retaliation. That's what patience is. Someone has said patience is that that long-suffering which makes allowance for others' shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. Long-suffering is godlike, isn't it? Isn't our Heavenly Father that way, beloved? Patient and long-suffering toward us. Remember Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6? It says that the Lord, when He passed by in front of Moses, He declared this concerning Himself, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. God is a gracious God. And how does that manifest itself in the fact that he's slow to anger? And instead, what does he do? He, he abounds in loving kindness and steadfast, loyal love for people who do, deserve only hell and punishment and condemnation. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. See, flowing from his graciousness, it's his long-suffering and that he's slow to anger towards people who offend him. And he's instead patiently forbearing towards sinners. Gracious people are long-suffering people, beloved, like the Lord. And that flows, again, from a, an understanding, a growing understanding and appreciation of God's abundant grace shown toward you. Just ask yourself right now. As you think about your, your, any relationships that you currently have that are strained, maybe your marriage, maybe something in your, with your kids, or maybe in the church, any relationship that is currently strained, ask yourself this. Is there anything that that person has done to you greater than your offenses toward a holy God? Is there anything that they've done to, toward you that is greater than the offenses you've committed toward God before coming to Jesus Christ or after coming to Jesus Christ? Anything. The answer is a definitive no, right? No. God has forgiven you and I of infinitely greater sins than those committed against us. And so, beloved, it cannot be and must not be that we who have been forgiven of so much cannot forgive the sin of someone else. It cannot be. We simply don't have an excuse if we are to love as God loves. Isn't that what he exhorts in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2? Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, giving himself up for, for you. We are to love as Christ loved. In verse 2, then long-suffering manifests itself. Notice in, in an expressed loving forbearance towards others. He says, showing tolerance for one another in love or literally forbearing with one another in love. I don't like that translation tolerance there in some translations that we may have because tolerance sends this message of, of tolerating people as if to say, I can't stand that person, but I guess I'm going to put up with them, right? I'm just going to tolerate them. Some, somewhat of a drudgerous, reluctant way. That's not what he's talking about here. This is different. This is a, a sacrificial, 
enduring with those who offend us to such an extent, beloved, that instead of giving them, repaying evil uh, for evil, this is an expressed, uh, we express love and kindness towards those individuals. We endure with them in such a way, even though they've offended us, that instead of being harsh and being vindictive toward them, we, we in turn are kind toward them and we meet a need that they may have. We express love to them. That's why he says, showing tolerance for one another in love. There's the motivation. And that kind of love is not the kind of love that you give to someone or you serve someone because they deserve it or because they earned your love somehow and therefore you love them in return. It's talking in this context about the fact that they've wronged you. So you forbear with them in love and instead you give them kindness and and you, you meet a need. That's what he's talking about here. And it's not natural to do that, is it? It's supernatural. It's spirit-wrought kind of love here that he's asking for. How many times, beloved, have you not turned your back on God? How many times have you not been faithless toward the Lord? How many times have you given God your word that you would not do something anymore and you go back on your word? How many times have you not trusted in his promises in the midst of your trials and your sufferings? How many times have you not forgiven your brother or sister in Christ or your spouse or your kids? How many times have we sinned against God? Has God abandoned us? Yes or no? He doesn't abandon us. What does our heavenly father do? He pursues us, doesn't he? He loves us. He forgives us. He comforts us. He encourages our hearts. He provides for us though we don't trust him many times for his provision. See, God is a relentlessly loving God. Even in his loving discipline, he does so so that we may return to him for his glory and our own good. And yet, what do we do with one another, beloved? We don't forbear that way. We throw in the towel as if, hey, you know what? They've really done it this time. That really crossed the line. There's a limit to my suffering here. And that did it right there. See, we need to remember that Jesus, the perfect blameless sacrifice for our sins has put up with a lot more than you and I will ever put up with one another. We can't even begin to understand the sin that he bore upon himself. The offenses that he bore upon himself to the point where his father turned his back on him at that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did that happen? Because Jesus was a sin bearer at that moment. God, the Father was pouring His wrath upon His own Son for our sins. We can never even begin to understand, beloved, what that, what, what the significance of that. First Peter two twenty three says that Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Oh, we need to learn from Him, don't we, beloved? displaying these kinds of attitudes that lead to cultivating unity amongst us, to preserving that unity that is, that is visible before a watching world. We need to cultivate these virtues that are so, so much. Um, our, our Lord Jesus Christ is, is the example of them. Now, what motivates unity? That's our third point, the motivation for unity. The motivation for unity. And I submit to you it is this. It is the unity that Christ has established by virtue of his death and resurrection. 
And Paul alludes to this established unity of Jesus Christ by virtue of his atoning sacrifice in verses 4 through 6. Notice what he says there. There is no connector there in verse 4. If you have the New American Standard, it says there is. There's no connector there. You can read verse, verse 3 into verse 4 this way. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He goes right into these seven unifying truths or realities that really are the ground and the motivation for us preserving unity here. Again, we don't establish or create this unity. Jesus Christ did that in these unifying truths in verses 4 through 6 essentially encapsulate everything that Christ established for us by virtue of his death and resurrection. Notice that they're in triads or groupings. And each of these that appear here contain a member or person of the Godhead. If you notice in verse 4, you have one spirit. In verse 5, you have the one Lord who is Jesus Christ, the Son. In verse 6, you have one God and Father. All three persons of the Trinity, beloved, appear, which means that the three persons of the Godhead are intricately involved in the unbreakable oneness of the church. Think about the profundity and depth of that reality and the beauty of it. In one sense, when we function in unity, we are, we are mirroring the oneness that exists eternally in the Godhead. Such a beautiful thing, isn't it? He uses three different Greek words as well here that all translate the word one in the English. He says one body in verse 4. We know what the one body is. The fact that we are one church comprised of all believers, those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. We, are one, we have one spirit. There is one indwelling spirit that lives in each believer. But I think he's emphasizing here the fact that this, the one spirit has unified all believers into this one body. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, the one body united in one spirit possesses one unified hope. We all share of the same hope, beloved, that really is encapsulated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's why he says that really this hope is wrapped up in the one Lord, verse 5. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he's the Lord of the church. The whole body of Christian hope is possible, beloved, because of the one Lord, Jesus' atoning work on the cross for our sins. Think about that. Thus we share one faith. This can refer subjectively to the act of believing in Jesus Christ. But I think in this context, most likely what he's referring to is objectively to the substance of our faith that we share. Jude 3 says that, calls it the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The common body of belief that Christians share and that unify us. And he says one baptism. I don't think he's referring to water baptism here, but to the act by which the Holy Spirit, the one Spirit, puts the believer into the body of Christ, and we become part of the one body, the church. That's what he's emphasizing here, unity, oneness. And then he says, one God and Father of all, who is over all, emphasizing his sovereign rule, and and through all, his omnipotence, and in all, his omnipresent What great unity we have, beloved. And over and over again, you can't miss it, right? Seven times in verses 4 through 6. One, 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 one. One God and Father of all. What is the point? One. We are one body and one-ness. We're called to live out functionally. 
That's his point. Not to dissect all of these particular uh, blessings here, but to emphasize the oneness that we share. And that becomes the ground and the motivation for why we are called to preserve unity, beloved. Because we don't create this. This is all because of the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done this. He gave his life for unity. He calls us to preserve it. Isn't that amazing and awesome? Now, there are three takeaways that I want you to think about as we end this, okay? And as we head into next Sunday morning. One, I want you to marvel at this unity. Marvel at it. No single passage, maybe others match up to it, but this is at the top of the list. No single passage has impacted my high view of ecclesiology of the church more than Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. We need to marvel at the unity that Jesus Christ, by virtue of his atoning sacrifice, has established for us, that we are one with Christ and one with his people. And again, if you are not in Christ, this is very foreign to you. The first commitment that you must make is to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, that you would be, spiritually speaking, in the body of Christ. But for us who are believers, beloved, how glorious and beautiful. And we should marvel at the unity that we have with Christ and with his people here. I pray that the church is a blessing to you. I pray that, that whenever you think about the church and the dynamics of the church and this beautiful living organism, that you grow in your appreciation of our mighty, majestic God who put forth this great plan that in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, He would call people from every tongue and nation and tribe into one body in Jesus Christ. How often do you worship God and marvel at what He has done? Secondly, I want you to take notice in particular from our observations of these seven unifying truths that belief matters in unity. Belief matters in unity. What do I mean by that? These are not, these seven unifying truths are not some weak, superficial realities, wishy-washy realities with no depth or substance. There's profundity and depth here to emphasize to us that when we think about unity, we should not think of it as a call for ecumenicalism. Right? As if to say, hey, everyone get together and we simply are just called to get along regardless of what you believe. Let's just love each other. It doesn't matter what you believe. No. The seven unifying truths here in verses 4 through 6 would negate that type of ecumenical approach to unity, if you will, or a call to unity. Detach from what you believe. What you believe and affirm to be true, beloved, matters. Doctrine matters. Teaching, healthy teaching matters because sound doctrine leads to healthy living. We're going to see that in the book of Titus when we launch in three Sundays or four Sundays from today into the book of Titus. Sound doctrine leads to sound living in the church. Doctrine matters. So we can disagree on some secondary matters and some nuances and aspects of, for example, eschatology or specific nuances in Scripture, what things look like in the end times or whatever. Christians can disagree on some secondary matters, but there are some key things, some core cardinal doctrines that should be, should be common belief. Like what? The fact that this is the Word of God. Right? It's authoritative over your life. It has final word over your life. It's sufficient. It's everything that you need. What about salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone? Not by the works, by, by your own works. Not by human merit. 
You cannot do anything to earn your salvation. We must agree there because that has to do with your eternal, eternal soul, beloved. You must believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by your own human works or merit. The, piggybacking off of that, you must believe in the, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and men. That he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And if he is not one or the other of those, then you cannot look to him to be your redeemer and your savior and your one mediator. He is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. The Trinity. You must believe and affirm that we, have, we worship one God existing eternally in three persons. Now, we may disagree on some of the nuances of that. We may spend tons of hours, as we have even recently, delving into the profundity of that truth, the truth of the Godhead. But you must affirm that basic reality and that basic truth. You deny it, that has to do with your eternal soul. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that with certain great truths, profound truths like these, that we fully grasp them and all of their depth and, and nuances. But we, we do affirm them and we believe in them to be true and we grow in our understanding and appreciation of these great doctrines. But belief matters in unity, beloved. Unity doesn't mean ecumenicalism and everything doctrinal goes out the window. Uh-uh, it doesn't. And just check the history of the church to see how things go whenever there's an ecumenical call with doctrine going out the window. It doesn't go very well. Thirdly, and we'll end here with this one. Thirdly, I want to remind you of this. Our identity in Christ, and thus our unity in Christ, as a church, transcends any differences that you may have with anyone else, other believers. Transcends any differences. In other words, what we gather from these seven unifying truths and the unity that, that, that is being spoken of here is that our identity in Jesus Christ transcends any differences that you may have, be they of a social nature, background, personality, age bracket. Some of you in here are older. Some of you are mid-range. Some of you are younger. We have some babies and toddlers in here. We did first hour. Our identity and unity in Christ transcends any of those differences that we have. If you are, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a follower of Christ, we are one in Christ. One in Christ. Let me get even more pinpointed. It applies to our ethnicity. It does. In the first century, the greatest separation that existed was the one between Jews and non-Jews that they called Gentiles in certain contexts. And Paul makes the point in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, that Jesus, the great peacemaker, has brought peace by virtue of his atoning death, so that now believing Jews and believing Gentiles come together in one body, the church. And their identity is not in them being Gentile or Jew anymore, but in Jesus Christ. That they are one in Jesus Christ and thus in peace with one another. And if there's a point, beloved, that I want to make even today is that the peace that Jesus has, has accomplished transcends any differences that may have existed between you and another believer. Period. The unity that Christ has established is greater than any difference that you may have with another believer. So we have Caucasian people in here. White people, black people, brown people, including Hispanics. We have some European mix, right? 
had some Filipino brethren in the first, in the first uh, uh, service, Central Americans, Russians, Chinese, Koreans. Listen, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, that is not your primary identity. It is that you are one in Christ with those fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's it. I want you to know that. Those are gospel realities. Paul addresses that in Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't he? There are real differences. Just look around the room right now. Right? Some people are better looking than others. Just kidding. Okay, I just, that wasn't right, right, Bob? We're all different. Different nationalities, different backgrounds, different age brackets, right? Different ethnicities. We know that, that distinctions are a reality, beloved, but those distinctions and differences should not lead, listen to me carefully, to segregation, indifference, or partiality in the church of God. Christ is our identity. We're one in Jesus as a church if you are a follower of Christ. Don't you remember what Paul said in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10? Have you forgotten? Colossians 3.10 says that in Christ, Christians have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And here it is, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. And here's the point, but Christ is all and in all. You want to hear my interpretation of that? Christ trumps any differences that we may have. We are one in Christ. That's my interpretation of that verse. And then he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he calls Christians this, you are chosen of God, holy and beloved believer. That's who we are right there. You want to glory in a particular identity, glory in the fact that you are chosen of God, holy and you're loved. In Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. This is our identity as Christians. And that transcends any ethnic, social, age, personality, distinctions, background. You name it. So that distinctions exist, but they don't trump who we are in Jesus Christ and in the church. So what do we do with differences and distinctions that are evident amongst us? You know what we do? We celebrate unity and diversity. We celebrate unity in Christ in the midst of our beautiful diversity. We learn to appreciate our different ethnicities. We remember that we're one human race at the end of the day. We love one another in Christ. And we reflect here on this earth in a, in a, in a giving a little glimpse of heaven where people with all, from all kinds of different tongues and nations and tribes and cultures will worship the great Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we picture, beloved, on a Sunday morning here. How glorious is that, isn't it? We're one in Jesus Christ. Well, what does Jesus want for his church? He desires unity. A unity that is motivated by the oneness that Jesus, by virtue of his work on the cross and his resurrection, has accomplished on our behalf, right? That's what we're called to reflect there's another aspect of this unity that we want to look at, and it's the unity in the sense of the pursuit of common purpose. And we're going to look at that next week in particular, how Jesus has graciously provided abundantly for this unity as well in verses 7 through 16. Let's pray together, beloved. Heavenly Father, 
We are astounded and marvel and floored by the oneness that Jesus, by virtue of his atoning death, has accomplished for us that which is unbreakable and indestructible and unchanging. We know that the world is passing away, Lord, with its structures. Even our own families, biologically speaking on this earth, won't go on forever. But your church, united in Christ, will live forever. The redeemed. Oh, Lord, help us to preserve unity on this earth to be at peace with one another, to reconcile with one another, picturing the gospel and what God, you have done for us in your son. Help us to be one in purpose, devoted to the progress of the gospel, the building up of your people, your church. Thank you for this precious church. Father Calvary, an amazing heritage for 60 plus years of gospel ministry in this melting pot that is Southern California. Lord, help us to continue to reflect our community. Help us to continue on our mission by your grace of bearing witness of the exalted Christ, the risen exalted King who is returning, calling sinners to repentance that they may come and worship with us as well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.